Guys, welcome to the final episode of What the Actual F. As always, my name is Harmony, and I am here to ruin another holiday for you. That's right, on the last episode, I ruined Christmas by telling you about a horrific massacre that occurred. And now, I am here to do it all over again with New Year's. Picture for me, if you will, you are out on New Year's Eve, you're having a fantastic time. Maybe you're drunk, maybe you're not, whatever you're doing, you're loving it. But suddenly, you are now fighting for your life. The whole evening has gone from an absolute amazing time to the most fear and terror you will ever experience as you beg and plead to not be killed. Sounds a bit dramatic, I know. That could never happen to you. Except, uh, statistically, it very much could. I don't want to scare you with numbers, but if you would like to never sleep again, go ahead and use Google and find out how likely you are to possibly be met with violence on a holiday. Like I said, we just can't have nice things in this world. For this episode, I want to focus on a tale about a lovely little pair of friends. It was the early hours of New Year's Day in 1998 when Olivia Hope and Ben Smart climbed onto a stranger's boat. This would be the last moment that the two friends were ever seen alive. A moment that would be re-examined over and over and over again. I don't know if I mentioned this, but also over again. This could be one of the most high-profile murders and heavily contested investigations to ever come out of New Zealand. That's right, we're not even in America for this one. I have people that listen to this from all over the world, so it's time to start seeking more crime in other countries. We're going on a trip in our favorite rocket ship, going through the ocean. All right, I think I've been sufficiently awkward enough for the intro. What do you say we dive in? Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, welcome to the story of Murder on the Sound. I don't know, we've been in Oliveira. No, I've never met them, I've never seen them. And they definitely never came on my boat, and I definitely didn't murder them. In the early hours of January 1st, 1998, when everyone was settling down from the events of ringing in the new year, Ben Smart and Olivia Hope, two young New Zealanders, would disappear while everyone else was having the time of their lives. These two friends had also been celebrating the New Year's at Ferno Lodge, celebrating and partying with other people right there at the Marlborough Sounds. The pair accepted an offer from a stranger to stay aboard his yacht. That would be the last time that they would ever be seen alive again, and to this day, their remains have never been found. The disappearance of the two sparked one of the most publicized investigations in the history of New Zealand. And because most of my audience is in America, I thought that this story needed to be heard by more. After a five-month investigation, Scott Watson would be arrested and charged with the murder of both Olivia and Ben. Here is a bit of an issue. A lot of people believe that this is not justice. We're going to dive into this case, and I'm going to share with you everything that I can. And maybe you'll be like many and think that maybe this was some sort of rush. Was Scott really the one who committed the crime, or was he just kind of an asshole who 
maybe rub people the wrong way and therefore now everyone thinks he's a murderer? Or was there really some mystery guy that committed the crimes and is still scot-free today? Get it? Scot-free because Scott's the one that took the fall. Nope, not that funny. Okay. The only physical evidence presented at court which would even link Scott to the couple were two blonde hairs. These hairs were stated to have been hopes and they were found on a blanket on Scott's boat. Yeah, that doesn't look so good. But also, that is the only evidence. Scott's trial would generate considerable media attention and a lot of public debate over it. After an 11-week trial, he was found guilty and then sentenced to life imprisonment with, at the very least, a minimum non-parole period of 17 years. Now, for over 20 years, Scott Watson has maintained that he is innocent, and he's filed several unsuccessful appeals. In June of 2020, it was announced that his case would be referred back to New Zealand's Court of Appeal. To this day, the disappearance of Ben and Olivia and the conviction of Scott have remained a subject of ongoing speculation and arguments throughout, well, the world. Many people believe that New Zealand has a possible miscarriage of justice going on. This case has been the subject of movies and books and just the hot topic of debate all around. Allow me to tell you the full story and you can decide, did Scott commit the murders or was it someone else? The death of Ben Smart and Olivia Hope is part of the psyche of who we are as New Zealanders. The man who was convicted of their double homicide, Scott Watson, is a household name, and numerous books have been written about this case, speculating on what actually happened on the night of the 31st of December 1997. At that time, I was a clerk at the Blenheim District Court. Blenheim's my hometown. But like many New Zealanders, I've had a few residual questions about the safety of the conviction of Scott Watson. I believe that the conviction of Scott Watson for the murder of Ben and Olivia is a miscarriage of justice case. I'm not saying that the Crown stitched him up. I don't know whether in reality he killed Ben and Olivia. And I'm not saying that the defence did a bad job. The Scott Watson conviction is a miscarriage because the investigation and the trial was unfair. In December of 1997, friends Ben Smart, who was 21, and Olivia Hope, who was 17, went out to celebrate New Year's Eve at Ferno Lodge. The Ferno Lodge was located in the Indeva Inlet, which was in the Marlborough Sounds, with about 1,500 to 2,000 other people all in this location with Ben and Olivia. So that means that after all this went down, there were a lot of people to talk to. Olivia had traveled to the lodge with a group on a chartered yacht, the Tamarack. Ben had arrived separately, however. At roughly around 4 o'clock in the morning, lodge bartender Guy Wallace drove Olivia and Ben in his water taxi to the Tamarack, where the pair had intended to go ahead and call it a night and just sleep. However, when the two got there, they learned that there were no vacant areas for them to rest their heads. They then re-boarded the water taxi. Guy had three other passengers on this boat as well. Hayden Morrissey, 
Sarah Dyer, and a single man who would become very crucial in this whole investigation. Now, this single man who was all by himself offered Ben and Olivia a place to sleep on his yacht. That's a red flag. That is a red flag. I'm sorry. If I don't know you and it's four o'clock in the morning and you're like, hey, I got a yacht. You can come. You can come sleep on it. Nope. As how I met your mother taught me, nothing good happens after midnight. However, this would be the very last time that the pair would be seen alive. Ben and Olivia were reported missing on January 2nd of 1998. Initially, the Benheim police treated the investigation as a missing persons case. But it would soon become very apparent that the disappearance was rather suspicious and out of character for the two. Detective Inspector Rob Pope was appointed to take charge of the investigation on the 5th of January. Alongside him, a mix of other police staff from all over the country would join in on the investigation. Shortly thereafter, the case would turn from a disappearance to a homicide case. The investigation was then named Operation TAM, which was short for the Tamarack, which was the boat that they were on, yeah. This case would generate widespread interest from media and the public and just be shared and talked about and debated over for years to come. The investigation was very large in scope. It featured requests for information from the public, significant amounts of interviews across the country, and it would span for months and have extensive searches of the waters and all of the surrounding areas, despite everything, however. No bodies have ever been found. As evening fell, the party moved ashore, and soon the lodge's grounds and bar were packed with revelers. At Ferno that night, Guy Wallace was working behind the bar. He was to become a key witness in a murder inquiry. At the bar was a scruffy-looking man. Wallace would later tell the police he took this man to a catch with Ben Smart and Olivia Hope, the so-called mystery man. When the guy from the catch was drinking in the bar, he was drinking bourbons and coke. Right. Yeah, how you doing, man? How's it going? Yeah, pay with fistfuls of cash screwed up in bundles. It seemed friendly enough. It's just pissed. Down, mate. He was scruffy, unkempt. He hadn't seen a hairdresser for a while. Hey, uh, I'll go to have two red wines, please. Sure, that'll be $10. Uh, well, I saw him drop something. As he bent down to pick it up, he perved at a girl in a short skirt. He was about 30, um, sort of straightish brown hair, really scruffy, really weathered looking, as if he almost had come from a yacht or a boat or, you know, had been somebody that that lived on a boat or... Um, and, yeah, he just had a really weird um, demeanour about him, just really creepy. I really remember vividly a friend and I saying to each other, oh, my goodness, look at that guy. There is a rather suspicious character I need to bring to your attention. We're gonna refer to this guy as the mystery man. 
With very little to go on, police began trying to determine the identity of an unknown or mystery man that offered Ben and Olivia a place to sleep on his boat. Police claim that there were a number of descriptions of Scott Watson earlier in the night that were very similar to the description of the unknown man. There were several descriptions depicting Scott with a scruffy look that evening saying that he had wavy hair and needed a shave or a haircut. However, the photograph of Scott taken on the Mina Carnelia yacht, where he partied before heading over to the Ferno Lodge, shows him clean-shaven with short hair. So unless in between the time frame to the murders, he grew his hair out and had a beard, I'm not so positive it's the same person. But again, I'm gonna let you be the judge. Although the depiction of the mystery man and what Scott looks like doesn't really match, police quickly focus all of their attention on Scott. It's not exactly sure why Scott stood out to the police, but many people believe it is because of his criminal record. Scott had a pretty rough rap sheet with 48 criminal convictions at that time. Many of them were from when he was a teenager and stemmed from burglary, theft, cannabis offenses, two counts of possessing an offensive weapon, one for assault when he was 16, and a few other little stints in juvie and then prison itself. However, with all the bad he committed as a teenager and in his early 20s, it seemed as though he reformed later on in his 20s. Because for the last eight years, he had only gotten in trouble with the law one time. And no, that doesn't mean he's obviously not doing anything bad, it just means he wasn't getting caught. I'm kidding, we don't actually know, but it did really seem as though he was straightening up his act. So this guy offered Ben and Olivia to come stay with him on his mystery catch or boat. Guy Wallace told police and the media that he had dropped Ben and Olivia off at a wooden catch with two masts. He described the catch as a well-maintained built of timber with a quick blue stripe on the hole and several round portholes with brass surrounds. Scott's boat, Blade, was very different to the one that Guy was describing. Scott's was a 26-foot-long steel sloop with one mast, no portholes, and didn't have a blue stripe. Hayden Morrissey told the court that the boat he saw Ben and Olivia get onto, the catch, it definitely wasn't Scott's boat. With a handful of people at this point stating there is no way that it was Scott's boat, the police are still going forward. Because they analyzed thousands of photos taken on New Year's Eve and interviewed all of the boat skippers there, but they were unable to corroborate Guy's reports of this mystery catch in the inlet that night. At the trial, the Crown stated that the police eliminated every single other 176 yachts that were identified in the vicinity at the time. In fact, the police were very much just starting to think that this catch didn't exist because they had done their research and it didn't matter that several people were claiming to see Ben and Olivia get off of the water taxi and get into this catch. The police state that it just most likely didn't exist. Detective Pope stated that the police were fairly certain that it just didn't exist at all. However, a number of witnesses who did come forward with sightings of this two-masted catch said that their statements 
were just not followed up on because <laughs> it didn't fit their story. Actually, no, that's not what he said, but nobody would follow up anymore on the catch because the police just didn't believe it. Therefore, when anyone came forward with information about the catch, they didn't take it. Talk about a way to make sure that your narrative fits. We can see the accused in the photograph with you. Yes. And uh, clearly it was dark at the time that photograph was taken. Yes. We can see from the outside. Yeah. Close to being dark. Now, could you agree that the accused Watson was dressed um, quite tidily? Yes. And he appears to have, uh, appears to be clean-shaven in the photograph? Yes. My job was um, basically on the jetty, um, watching for people coming in, checking them for glass and alcohol, which they weren't allowed to take up to Funo. I remember Scott Watson coming in, and he sort of hit on the girls a little bit. Lovely spot, lovely night. And my son told him to get out. <laughs> he had a bottle with him, um, a drink, and we told him that he either had to drink it, take it back to his boat, or put it in the bin. Now, or you can put it in the bin. Oh, okay, it's too... Okay. <laughs> Hi, can I check your bag, please? Yeah, thank you. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> thank you, sweetheart. Thank, thank you. you. Happy New Year, Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Hey, wait, 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 ladies, ladies, ladies. Sorry if I'm pissed you off back there, but can you use some, can you hurt? No. Huh? Sweet, sweet. I was pissed. What? Uh, so was everyone else. It was a New Year's Eve party, but I definitely wasn't the only drunk person there. I definitely wasn't the only drunk person saying ham-fisted comments to women about their tits and their asses. Snorzy McGee, aka Binks, is joining the podcast. Just be fair warned that randomly, you're gonna hear him. Despite the initial publicity and search for a two-masted catch, the police instead seized Scott's small sloop, aka Blade, and from then on would focus the full investigation on him. Suddenly, rumors about the Watson family began to swirl in the small town of Picton. And quickly, these rumors would blow up in the national media. Police would go forward and obtain warrants in order to tap the phone lines of Scott and all of his associates. This began in February of 1998 until his arrest. An investigation known as Operation Kelt, police would record 70 plus hours of Scott's phone conversations and persuaded his former girlfriend to ask him potentially very incriminating questions. At his trial, the jury heard about 40 minutes of his edited conversations and recordings. In these, Scott described the police as being smug. However, he didn't actually ever say anything that could really incriminate him or state that he was involved with Ben and Olivia's disappearances. Later, Scott would accuse police of influencing the media coverage of the case, suggesting that, you know, he's guilty when there was no reason to believe so. He said the police followed and intimidated members of his family and alleged that he had an incestuous relationship with his sister. 
Yeah, that was a rumor going around. Mm -hmm. I didn't really feel the need to share it because it has nothing to do with the murder. And I also don't really know what to believe when it comes to the media and half the shit they make up. Mm -hmm. Gerald Hope, Olivia's father, has also asserted that the police deliberately leaked details of Scott's criminal history and were responsible for unsubstantiated suggestions of incest. You know, it's gotta be a lot when the father of one of the victims that you are found guilty of murdering, even though there's like zero evidence, tries to stick up and say, no, well, the police are kind of assholes. Yeah, mm -hmm. I, I saw them make up and try to like instigate all of this. I think they're kind of fibbing. If you're curious and want to learn about the fact that they probably were not having an incestuous relationship, but you can look into all of the slander that was being said about Scott and his sister. Now, I'm not saying Scott's like the best person ever, because I still think he's a total fucking creep and a douchebag, but I personally don't think he's a murderer. <laughs> about 10 p.m. or thereabouts, some guy started talking to Mary. He said something like, Hey, what's your name? And she said, Wouldn't you like to know? She is very cute. She is cute, mate. That's why you stay over your side of the table where it's going to get problems. Then knocks over Mary's string and her pack of smokes. Mary goes to pick up the smokes and he bends down at the same time and touches her breast. Let's go. Let's go. Come on. No, 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 no. Fuck you. For me, this case is really interesting because it leaves me with a question. And that is, is this a case about the character and credibility of Scott Watson combined with the heinous nature of the crime that happened in our heads with Ben and Olivia? Or is it a case about the cold, hard facts of what we know or don't know about what happened on the 31st of December? Guy said that he also felt tremendous pressure from the police and the media. He was interrogated by detectives from Christchurch CIB, and they suggested that somehow Guy was responsible for the disappearance of both Ben and Olivia. I'm not even sure how that would make sense. I mean, they were on a water taxi. Somebody offered for them to stay there. What was Guy supposed to do? Yeah, hey, I don't know you guys, but that sounds like a bad idea. I'm not your parent or anything, but don't do that. That wouldn't go over very well, because I'm pretty sure if I was out and about with somebody and a random, I don't even know you from Joe Schmo was like, hey, you shouldn't go do that. I'd be like, that's cool, who the fuck are you? So I'm not exactly sure what they expected Guy to do, but now he was somewhat on the hook. So as a result of these now flying around rumors of accusations against him, all by the police, the community and those who knew him started to treat him with suspicion. People that he had trusted and were close with him started to think that he was guilty of murder and they began to shun him. He said that in the initial stages of the investigation while the police were looking at him because they were so desperate just to arrest anyone, he says, quote, I know in my heart of hearts, if Scott wasn't there, I'd be doing time. It's just that simple. And honestly, as we continue, you may sort of see, it really seems like the police just wanted to put somebody behind bars, even if it's not the right person. Side note to any cop or any system out there that's responsible for the law and crimes. You are not solving a crime if you are just picking an end. You have to solve it by like actually <laughs> finding out what happened. You can't just be like, oh my God, 
I know what it is. Nope, I said I know what it is. I don't need to know any other evidence because I solved it. Case closed, thank you. I said case closed. You know, it's like they don't care. They just want to be like, no, we got the murderer. <laughs> what? The DNA doesn't match? Shit. Just kidding. There's no DNA here. Now, this would take such an impact on Guy's life and continue for so long. In 2015, Guy told Stuff that for years afterwards, he was haunted by his involvement with the case. And he did somewhat feel responsible for the reason that Scott Watson was in prison. No matter what Guy said, they thought it was Scott, even though Guy said it wasn't Scott. And of course, they thought it was Guy as well, even though Guy was like, yo, it's not me and it's not Scott. There was literally another guy. Do you understand the words that are coming out of my mouth? It really, and I do mean really, can't stress enough, ate guy up. He said that the case was a huge impact on his life. Ever since that moment in 1997, when he encountered them, his life changed forever. Sadly, in March of 2021, he died. Just before the trial, Guy died in a rather suspicious, although suspected to be suicide. To me, that's one of the most suspicious things about this case. A witness just dies of suicide? Yeah, I get it. It was really rough, there was a lot going on. But he also could have helped solve the case. And uh, I think that screams a lot more than him committing suicide himself. Anyways, you can be the judge. Do you think he killed himself or did somebody else do it for him? Scott Watson was, according to witnesses, drunk and obnoxious. He said he was 26 and was sailing by himself to Tonga. He said he owned the only catch in the bay. This is nice, though. I mean, it's a little girly, but he gay, mate. Later on, he grabbed my necklace and asked if I was a girl or gay, which is pretty irrational. Cool, he's looking a dick. Yeah? Then he asked me if I had a sister. You got a sister? Which was weird. We fuck off, mate. His sister is cancer. <laughs> How the fuck was I supposed to know? I right. told him that Ollie's sister had cancer. And this guy says that she'd be dead within two years. Fuck you. Come on, I'm sorry. Dude, fucking sensitive, eh? What's the name of the Johnny Castle? A boy named Sue. Okay, so here's this little rugby playing 18-year-old wearing a pearl necklace. And he goes to a pub with a whole lot of drunk people. Of course, he's going to get some shit. And he said afterwards that it belonged to his poor sister that had died. And I, I feel sorry for the guy about that. I feel sorry for the family. On April 20th of 1998, Guy was shown eight photos containing eight different people. In one of these shots, Scott had his eyes half closed in the middle of blinking. The unidentified man on the water taxi that Guy had driven that night said that he had described this man as having hooded eyes. Which means, for some reason, based on this blinking photograph, Guy picked Scott out as the single man on the water taxi. Which, again, really makes no sense because he swears it wasn't Scott, yet he picked Scott out. People say it's because the way Scott looks while he's blinking, it must have confused him. I don't know, I blink all the time and people don't confuse me with somebody else. However, another person also said that Scott was this mysterious guy as well. 
Roz McNeely, the bar manager who served drinks to this unknown man at the lodge, said that I think it is Scott as well when she looked at those same photographs. These photographs show Scott on the Mina Cornelia yacht just hours before these murders would have occurred. You know, when that strange man was on the water taxi and then left with Olivia and Ben. He had a clean-shaven face in the photo and no beard and very short, almost no hair. Yet, the many people who saw this mysterious man describe him as having long, messy hair. He had more than a five o'clock shadow, but a full-on scruffy beard. And most of all, he wasn't all clean-shaven and nice and tidy. He was a bit disheveled. Based on these identifications, Scott would be arrested for the murders in the early hours of June 15th in 1998. Subsequently, both Guy and the bar manager Roz would recant their statements and state that, no, you know what, I don't think it is Scott. No, he's just blinking, I'm sorry, I was wrong. However, the police didn't accept this, oop, you made a boo-boo, we can try again, because they had their man, which means a trial was about to begin. Come and party. Wait, fuck off. Oh, come on. If he wants to sleep in here, mate, bugger off. Earlier, another boat, Bianco, had rafted up to the other side of Mina Cornelia. Watson's boat, Blade, was now one of three tied closely together. Still in a partying mood, Watson tried his luck again, this time with a young couple on Bianco. Yeah, bro, we're, we're done. Piss off. Come on, party. No, bro, piss off. I never sat there for 30 seconds in the hatchway, because that's what they said. Will you give it to me, mate? I'll look after it. Fuck off! I remember I was lost for words. I thought, well, yeah, that's a bit rude. And I'd just been kidding them, so yeah, I just left. trial for the murder of Olivia Hope and Ben Smart would attract considerable media attention. It began on June 10th of 1999 and concluded when the verdicts were delivered on September 11th of 1999. The Crown called approximately 488 witnesses. Gerald, Olivia's father, also had his own feeling about the prosecution and the case that they presented. In fact, he kind of saw it as theatrical. Really felt like they were reaching and manipulating basically evidence that wasn't there. They built a story and shared that with no real proof. In fact, he called it pure theater and said that it focused on emotional manipulation of the jury. After the trial was all over, Gerald Hope also went to inspect the blade, Scott's little boat. He did this while the boat was in storage, and to him, he stated that it felt highly unlikely that Ben and Olivia could have been locked in on that cabin. It, it just, it was small. It wasn't as if they could really fit. 
He also believed that there was no way his daughter would have entered that cabin if she needed somewhere to sleep because it was just so snug. However, I'm gonna play the devil's advocate and just state I've been really tired before, especially after a night of drinking. I didn't care where my head laid, I just needed to get somewhere because I was gonna go night night. Gerald may feel one way about the mystery catch and how it couldn't be the blade because there's no way Ben or Olivia would have fit in there. Mary, Ben Smart's mother, disagrees with Gerald. Quote, we think differently. As far as we're concerned, it was a fair and just trial. Mary does believe that Scott committed the crimes, no matter that there's just not a lot of evidence. After the accused had been over to the Bianco, did you then hear him walking across your boat to return to his boat? Yes, that's right. You, you could hear the sound of footsteps on the, on the deck mm -hmm. from where you were? Yes. All right, so if we're talking about that period of time while you were awake, after the accused returned in a water taxi to his boat, came onto your boat, went over to Bianco, and then returned back to his boat, um, you didn't hear the sound of any other person over that period of time, did you? No. Now I've got to share with you a theory. You know JFK's magic bullet theory? How one measly old little bullet just did all kinds of wondrous little tricks so that it could fit the narrative of the story. I'd like to introduce to you the two trip theory. The main juncture, the meat and potatoes of the Crown's case was that Scott invited Ben and Olivia to sleep on his yacht in the early hours of New Year's Day. And that would be the very last time that anyone would ever see them again. A lot of the Crown's case, if not all of it, was circumstantial and largely relied on the identification of Scott by Guy and Roz, both of whom had actually stated that they recanted their claims and they're pretty sure the police misled them to like, say what they wanted. In fact, in court, affidavits were actually presented where Roz and Guy both said they recanted their statements and they're 100% sure it wasn't Scott. Another water taxi driver by the name of Don Anderson also testified that he had dropped Scott at the Blade sometime between 2 and 4 a.m. Some of the occupants of the neighboring boats, the Mina Cornelia and the Bianco, testified that they were woken up by Scott in the early hours of the morning because he wanted to party. <laughs> he was being a real fucking creep, actually. This trip that had brought Scott out to the boats, agreed on by the Crown and the defense had taken place. That is trip number one. Here is where the Crown began to argue about another little trip. They state that Scott returned to shore after he was dropped off at the Blade, but they couldn't exactly say how he had made this second trip. I mean, I would at least say, yo, no, he swam because he was just surrounded by water and you can do that. You don't need a boat. I mean, if you really want it to fit your narrative, come on, come on, come on, come on, just say he swam. Anyway, so they don't know how he got out there, but the Crown was pretty damn sure he went back. And this is what became known as the two-trip theory. 
The Crown argued it did not matter that the prosecution could not prove how Scott got back to the shore, but simply that he must have done so because witnesses said that he was involved in an altercation on the shore. This altercation took place around 3 or 3.30 in the morning. I know, it's confusing. Was he there? Was he not there? Did he kill him? Did he not kill him? I don't know. Guy Wallace maintains that Scott Watson wasn't on the water taxi, let alone that he dropped him, Ben and Olivia off at Watson's boat. Wallace says that the other passenger was the mystery man from the bar. Do you know anywhere we can sleep? Ben and Olivia start asking me about accommodation. I said, it's New Year's Eve. There's no accommodation out here. You should have had luck, type of thing. I was like, God, what can you do for these kids? Pretty late. And this guy pipes up. Stay on my boat. Yeah? He can't. <laughs> and just got yeah, pissed off over the top. Anyway, he sort of ushers us to his vessel or whoever this vessel it is. It's a bloody beautiful looking boat. to the stern of the boat to drop people off, but um, you can see this is going to be stable anyway because it's such a big vessel. This is really kind of you. Are you sure there's enough room? Heaps. When they're getting off, you just keep, I've just got this bloody okay awful feeling. It's just like, ooh. And I said to them, are you sure you want to go to this? And it's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because everyone's half cut, apart from me, I'm sober. And, um... The prosecution had one thing they needed to explain. Where were the bodies? They claim that the blade left the inlet probably around 6 a.m. on New Year's Day, and it was carrying those pesky bodies. They then claimed that Scott dumped them into the Cook Strait. Afterwards, he returned to Erie Bay and lied about the time in which he actually arrived. A number of witnesses testified that they saw the boat at different times during the day. Another witness said that the blade arrived in Erie Bay shortly after 5 p.m. And also, when it arrived, Mr. Watson, he was the only occupant. But was he really the guy who killed Olivia and Ben? Did he really stash their bodies on his boat and go dump them and then try to cover it all up? Or... The family of a missing Blenheim couple increasingly fear the young pair has been abducted. They disappeared in the Marlborough Sounds in the early hours of New Year's Day. 17-year-old Olivia Hope, an Otago University student, and 21-year-old engineering assistant Ben Smart. Close friends who vanished after boarding an old wooden catch in the Endeavour Inlet on New Year's Day. They teamed up with this unknown male, um, conversation took place, and as a result, they ended up on this catch. An unknown male Caucasian, uh, described late 20s, early 30s. They were last seen boarding a catch moored nearby. It's described as being about 12 metres or 40 feet long, with a white hull, a blue stripe along the side, possibly with round portholes. By the 4th, the case was getting too big for the Blenheim police to manage on their own. They had to call in help. Detective Inspector Rob Pope was called. He arrived in Blenheim on the 5th 
and was put in charge of the inquiry on the 6th. Operation TAM, named after the Tamarack, was underway. Scott's boat, the Blade, was seized by police on January 12th of 1998. It was immediately subject to several examinations under the forensic scope. Police would find a blanket on the vessel from which a number of human hairs were later recovered. It was claimed at the trial that two of the 400 hairs on the blanket matched Olivia Hope's. She had a reddish golden blonde hair and these were identical to hers. Susan Ventiner, a forensic biologist, testified in court that one hair actually matched Olivia through DNA. The hair evidence was considered strong enough at the trial to overcome any uncertainty around the identification of Scott being the possible mystery man, you know, the one that Guy and Roz said they saw at the bar, and then Guy was like, oh, yeah, no, he got on my boat. Yeah, <laughs> it's just not Scott. Sorry. They were still holding on, though, to the fact that they had said that at one point because of that blinking photograph. However, I can understand. There were hairs belonging to somebody who is nowhere to be found on a boat that she supposedly was never on. That's a little bit suspicious, for sure. Murder suspicious? I don't know, because I'm pretty sure in passing with 2,000 people, hair fell out of people's scalps and flew all over places. Not saying it should be on your boat, but if it hitched a hike on your body, it may end up in your bed or on a blanket that you happen to be using, or, I don't know, we're in a very small vicinity of, because his little boat, 26 feet long, not a whole lot of room to do, like, you know, gymnastics and stunts. So he was bound to touch that blanket, which means it's very possible that after that whole night, a few hairs of Olivia and Ben and maybe somebody named John Sampson and other people could end up where they didn't belong. You know, like the owner's head. But I'm not saying he's not guilty. I'm also saying that I'm just not positive because it really doesn't feel like it, but maybe he is, I don't know. All of this led to subsequent appeals by Scott. His counsel even questioned the chain of custody that regarded this hair. They suggested that it may have been possible that Susan Ventiner may have mixed up the hair samples and possibly examined other hair that was found and mixed it with Olivia's. And this was because some of these samples were all kept on the same table. As in, just willy-nilly placed right by each other. And hey, if you see batches of hair, especially if they look identical, you might just assume whichever one's correct and take notes from that one. But again, we don't know. The defense also pointed out that there was a one centimeter hole in the evidence bag containing Olivia's hair. This meant that there was another risk of contamination. The forensic biologist, however, and that very same person, the one who may have mixed the hairs because they were so close to each other, did state on record at the trial there was a good chance of cross-contamination and it needed to be considered. The accuracy of the hair testing has also been questioned by other experts during the appeals and all of the years that have followed this trial, and it still remains very controversial. I do find it a little bit fucking bananas that that is the only real physical evidence, and still, it may not even be. Like, 
it legitimately could just be cross-contamination. And Scott is a, of course, fucking creepy douchebag dude that doesn't understand you should just not talk to women the way that you are. But I just don't know if he's actually a murderer. Scumbag, yes. Killer, uh, I don't know. Now, Popa subsequently said he doesn't know why he focused so intently on Watson almost from day one, but that in his mind, Watson began to stick out like dog's balls, and that he got a gut instinct about Watson based on his form and his agenda. Oh, I think it was because I had a criminal record, and I went to Furnow alone, and I left alone. I told him that. Basically, I was an easy target. Now, part of the Crown's case was that Scott cleans the blade in order to remove all evidence of Ben and Olivia. The only fingerprints found belonged to Scott and of his sister, Sandra Jo. She had actually just gone sailing with her brother for a few days in the new year, before the boat was seized. Scott said that he had cleaned the blade due to sea spray from a rough trip from the North Island shortly before New Year's Eve. The jury was also shown a few scratches that were on the interior foam lining of the hatch over Scott's boat. The Crown was using these scratches in stating that they were made by human fingernails, and also most definitely by a human who was trying to escape. However, the hatch was not lockable from the outside, and the positioning also meant that the hatch was open at the time it was scratched. Both Scott and his sister maintain that those scratches were actually made earlier by Scott's nieces. And now we've got some witnesses we need to talk about again. The jury heard from two prisoners whose names were kept out of the press. Two prison witnesses stepped forward with something on Scott. They claim that they met him when he got to prison and that he said, I'm responsible for the murders. I done did it. An author by the name of John Gutierrez would actually go on and state that these witnesses were bombshell evidence and had a dramatic impact on the case. However, Witness A subsequently admitted to a number of lawyers that uh, they were lying. At the time, Witness A had been receiving death threats from a gang member and they were coming up for parole. Police visited him 10 times over a 12-month period leading up to the trial and pressured him into making what he states are false accusations in his testimony. Witness A also said that he chose to help police in hope that it would be able to save him. He was really fucking scared of this gangster dude that was on the outside that he was possibly about to become face-to-face -face with. So he was hoping if, like, he scratched the police's back, they'd scratch his. I don't actually know what he wanted to get out of it, but he was hoping for something. Witness B said he and Scott interacted on numerous occasions and became really good friends at the Addington prison. Which is a little bit weird because Witness B was actually never in the same cell as Scott. He also had very little opportunity to ever develop any close relationship with Scott. You know, the kind of close one where a confession would be made. Especially one that happened in the same cell like he claimed. 
It would be later revealed that on his release from prison, Witness B was granted the use of a car and a cell phone for his testimony by the police. I guess I can kind of see why people are kind of like, hmm, feels like some fish is going on here. You guys sure Scott did it? Mm, you positive? Because it kind of feels like they may be setting him up. And I don't mean like they intentionally just put stuff together or planted anything. I mean, I strongly feel that they are intentionally making the narrative fit what they want. And I'm not alone. A lot of people feel this way. The Crown don't explain it. They actually said in the closing that it wasn't important, but it actually is vitally important. They don't explain how he got back on the land in order to be able to get into the water taxi to accompany Ben and Olivia to be brought out to the blade to be dropped off. That second time, not heard any of the commotion that would have occurred here. These boats are very closely rafted together. Any movement from one boat would have been transferred immediately to another boat. Nobody saw how he got ashore. Was it just hitching a ride with a passing boat? Who knows? There was a dinghy attached to the back of his boat. There were other dinghies around. It was a short trip in any boat. Does it matter sometime 3.30ish or thereafter? Then he couldn't be tucked up on his boat. And so it doesn't matter that we can't fill in the gap as to how he got there. He didn't just materialise, he had to have gone one way or another. If the Crown cannot persuade you, demonstrate to you, convince you that the accused returned to shore, then that's the end of the case. Because he is, as the prosecutor tried to facetiously say yesterday, back on blade, tucked up in bed. As you know, Scott would be convicted of the murders in September of 1999 after an 11-week trial. He was sentenced to life imprisonment with a minimum of non-parole period for 17 years. When the verdict was read out in court, Scott looked at the jury and said, you're wrong. To this day, Scott has stated he is innocent. And in 2015, during an interview, he said that he never even met Ben or Olivia. And he has stood by that till this very day. The defense appealed Scott's conviction and the case went to the Court of Appeal in April and May of 2000. Three different appeal court judges heard submissions from both the defense and the prosecution. They decided that there was no new evidence to recommend a second trial. They disregarded the defense's submission that the prosecution's so-called two-trip theory had appeared out of the blue and very late in the trial. Then in November of 2000, after the Court of Appeals hearing, a witness that testified in Scott's trial actually contacted the Weekend Herald. They said that the evidence that they gave under oath was nothing more than an act. He said that he was being threatened by gang members in prison. I wonder who that is. He also stated that because he was coming up for parole, police put him under pressure to say what they wanted. This witness spoke to reporters for hours. They did refuse to sign any documents that also could assist the lawyers that Scott had. However, he wasn't afraid to babble. With all of this new information, Yet again in 2003, Scott is denied a further appeal. 
And in 2009, Scott applied to the Governor General for a royal prerogative of mercy. He sent a 22-page letter and enclosed a copy of Keith Hunter's book, Trial by Trickery. He also included the award-winning documentary, Murder on the Blade. During all of this, the response was the recantment of Guy and Roz's testimonies. You guys know they kept saying, I didn't say that, I didn't say that, I didn't say that, I didn't say that. It was deemed that no matter what, with all of this evidence, with actual key witnesses saying they were coaxed into saying stories, that what they said wasn't true, who they saw didn't actually match Scott's description, everything coming out would still be considered no reasonable, no reasonable reason at all. Nothing, not even a little bit of doubt. Mm -mm. Nothing to allow any sort of appeal to go through. And you know, if Scott did do it, okay, then he is very good at covering his tracks, at least with actual tangible evidence. It just really frustrates me that he got the sentence he did and is locked away and is punished for these two murders because of a couple of strands of hair, which also was proven most likely were due to cross-contamination. However, I have shared with you guys several stories that have a lot of evidence. And the suspect in those cases is usually just out enjoying their life while the victim is dead. In June of 2020, it was reported that Scott's case would be referred back to the Court of Appeal. This is because of the continuing concern about the reliability of that forensic testing. You know, the one of the blanket and the hair, mm-hmm, yeah, that one. Scott also asked to be released from prison on bail while preparing for this appeal, but he was denied in October 2021. Then in May of 2020, the court agreed that when the hearing does go forward, cause they're gonna grant it, Scott would be allowed to challenge whether that controversial eyewitness evidence, you know, the blink photo, was properly obtained and should never have been heard by the jury at his trial. And mention how that whole identification by the photo should have been changed, seeing as how both of the key witnesses have stated that they recant their testimonies. And that is all I have until May of 2023 when a new hearing will commence. Eligible for parole, but even with parole, always he can be recalled back into prison for the rest of his life. I don't believe Scott will ever get parole because to do that, he has to show remorse for a crime that he hasn't even committed. And how do you show remorse for something that you haven't done? So imagine if this had happened to you with one of your kids. And the fact is, from just my experience, I know it can happen to anyone just as easily. It can happen to their daughter, their son, they get shafted. And my family and myself, we were just average people. There's a grenade that's gone off in three families. You've got more than two deaths. You've got Bev Watson that's passed away. You've got Mr. Smart. Mr. Smart never gave up. The hopes have never given up. There's three families that have been blasted apart by all of this. And if they haven't got this right, you know, what, where do you go from here?
Okay, I apologize. Of course, in the middle of this podcast, right here near the very end with all of the editing, my laptop decides to do a I don't even know what and just doesn't want to work. The thing is, this laptop is very old. It has been having a lot of trouble. I have been keeping it alive on its last, not even leg, its last toe. I'm going to hope that it still works and that I will be here next week with another episode. But if it stops working, I can't create. I know what you're thinking. Just go buy a new one. I will as soon as I can afford to. I don't I don't have fancy credit cards and uh, well, it's very expensive out there, but that's nothing for you to worry about. I will be back hopefully next week. But before I do, I would like to say one thing about Ben and Olivia's case. What the fuck? And if you don't know why I said that, then were you listening this episode? Because I'm pretty sure what I gathered in my research and in everything that I digested when it came to this case. They have absolutely nothing on Scott, but he is sitting and rotting in prison. He's a fucking creep, without a doubt. He's a creep, and he's definitely a gross dude that says really inappropriate shit. But somebody's character doesn't make them a murderer. Their actions do. And there's really nothing that can prove Scott did anything. Oh my god, those two hairs, Harmony. There were hairs on that tiger blanket on his boat. (laughs) Except the fact that cross-contamination is most likely the reason those hairs ended up on that blanket. Hair was freely on the table, and those bags were the culprit because there was a hole in the one that had Olivia's hair. Which means her hair have fallen and landed on the blanket. But we will have to see in 2023 what is decided. Is the heavy debate about this forensic evidence going to actually help? Will this mean Scott gets a new day in court? Will we ever know if the mystery guy really is Scott or if it's not? But most of all, will we ever find out where Ben and Olivia's bodies are? I hope that for the sake of the remainder of their family that is still here fighting to find out what happened to their loved ones, I hope for them, one day those answers will come. Thank you guys so much for sticking around and listening to this final episode for 2022. I don't know about you, but I really am so prepared to say goodbye to this year. It's been really tough lately, and it seems like it's good and (laughs) not exactly better, but I'm still here. And I really hope you will be next year too. And by next year, I mean next week, as long as my laptop is still working. Please guys, stay safe, enjoy your new year, and please remember, the trap of a dime, things can go really south. Protect yourself and always be aware of your surroundings. There's no denying, there are monsters out there. They just look like me and you. Okay, well, love you, later, bye!